1: My days are ended. The gods of once are gone. Forever. It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now. More than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last. To be king alone. And you, old friend. Will I see you again? No. (laughs) There are other worlds this one is done with me
2: that's it for someone who was never meant for this world I must confess I'm suddenly having a hard time leaving it of course they say every atom in our bodies was once part of a star maybe I'm not leaving maybe I'm going home
3: Two movie clips that relate to this episode dealing with alchemy and the Ouroboros. The first is from John Borman's Excalibur, which Eric Wilson in his book Secret Cinema, Gnostic Vision and Film, argued is the premier alchemical film. From the lead to gold transformation of Arthur to the laboratory vision of Merlin, a child of a demon and a human. The second is from Gataka, a scene that Gordon White and I agreed in our recent podcast together on Rune Soup, is a tearjerker and what's best in speculative cyberpunk and thus what's best in Gnosticism. Both scenes are about departing old worlds in a state of individual alchemical transfiguration, leaving behind massa confusa nightmares and embracing albedo dreams. The plenary vision of forgotten gods and recognizing that the stars were not in some distant galaxy but in our hearts all along. It's not about escaping, but surrendering to the fact we don't belong and must become what is beyond belonging. Something encompassing and transcendent. A newborn being that, at the very least, is the stuff of legend and storytelling and the stars themselves. As Robert Frost said, I'd like to get away from Earth a while and then come back to it and begin again.
1: The divine does not reach out to us from a cosmic beyond. It breathes from within. Our souls are secret entities which nest inside our skin. God is us. God is all around.
3: And as Jason Horsley said recently on a Twitter post, the same changing landscape that causes crisis also creates opportunity. The more things close down around us, the more these odd little openings appear. If we are in tune with our senses, then like water, we naturally flow towards the openings.
1: I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin.
3: This is alchemy, and we need spiritual alchemy more than ever, my beloved true seekers. Enough of just improving, or coping, or adding a little good. No, something radical and novel must emerge from us. Forever alter us into a living philosopher's stone rising from the mud of mere being. This is all alchemy. This is how we do more than survive in 2020. But thrive, thrive, thrive what's the journey i
2: have to make you have to make each of us has to make you talk about something called the soul's high adventure follow your bliss i mean find where it is and don't be afraid to to follow it
3: because we're in the age of hermes the new aeon of trickery and transitions and cosmic thievery of piercing reason and piercing parody flowing not just like water, as Jason said, but like mercury through those openings.
0: To go through all of that and make your way home again only to find such chaos in the world. I can only imagine. Chaos is a ladder.
3: Welcome to the Age of Hermes, which actually began in 2016 with the departure of the Starman. Who, like Merlin, is the great offspring of hell and earth. And the arrival of the trickster archetype, the shadow of the west.
0: Jeffrey Epstein did not kill himself.
3: Welcome to the age of Hermes. And we, those veterans of a thousand psychic wars, we, Johnny Cash Bodhisattvas, We, spiritual entrepreneurs, were tailored made for this era, as long as we embrace gnosis and alchemy. If it can be destroyed by the
2: truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth.
3: So let's talk about alchemy. For this, we have the honor to have at the virtual Alexandria, Sarah Dern, to discuss her new book. The Beginner's Guide to Alchemy Practical Lessons and Exercises to Enhance Your Life Sarah is truly an individual full of logos and Sophia so excited to promote such a rising morning star in the esoterica when I think of other occult youngins like Nate Miller Scarlet Ravenswood and Dan alex kazemi and others i see a future of reaching the farthest shores of imagination and the land of dreams during this age of hermes coming back with the fire of the gods and secrets to turning psychic led to gold
0: you want to understand
3: the universe embrace the universe the, the door to the universe is you i'm more like a starman and a merlin The son of hell and earth. A genic's black old son who points to the cosmic madness brought about by Yaldi Baldi.
0: Our father, which art in heaven.
2: Let him
0: fucking
2: stay there
3: but also uncovering starry portals beyond the coils of the Ouroboros that lead to the contraband secrets of the Gnostics and the promise of Sophia. Who are you?
0: I'm the monster's mother.
3: After all, Sophia is an aspect of Thoth, and both Thoth and Hermes are united as the giver of alchemy and father of Hermeticism. Sophia, like the Philosopher's Stone, is more hidden than ever, however. The Book of Enoch says Sophia was rejected by humanity and now hides in the clouds. While the Book of Job says wisdom is said to not be found anywhere in the land of the living. But death and hell have heard of her.
0: I don't want to interrupt. I'll just... It started on the apocalypse. Hey.
3: I love you. Yes. As a Gen X black old son. I know the dark aspects of Lady Wisdom. And still wander down here. In this terra damnata. I'll let the youngins like Sarah. Provide a more positive providence.
0: A new age. Has begun. An age of
3: freedom. Either way. Let's continue transforming together, and I, your host, Neil Connor, is eternally grateful to serve you as your host and Pompadus of Gnosis, here in this red Pill cafeteria, somewhere in the desert of the real. I am honored, and I truly appreciate your support. You can alchemically transform yourself, and it's time to stop denying your potential. Especially if you were made for this age of Hermes. You were made for alchemy and Hermeticism and riding the dangerous coils of the Ouroboros. Your potential is unlimited. And there's so much power in your mind. Is this all real? Or is it just happening inside my head? Of course it's happening inside your
1: head, Harry. Why should that mean that it's not real?
3: To show this, let us end with this quote from Gary Lachman from my book, Other Voices of Gnosticism. Here is Gary. If you want to experience Gnosis, if you want to know God, if you want to become like God, then you have to exist in all points of your life. At the same time, be the fetus in the womb, be the rotting in the grave, Be the young man, be the mature man, but also be everything else. Hermeticism is the religion of the mind. It is kind of a religion in that there's a belief in a spiritual reality beyond the material. But it doesn't depend on any particular kind of rite or hierarchy or structure or ritual or whatever. It's basically coming to understand your own mind, the potentials of your own consciousness. What we have to do is actualize our own full self, our own full being, our own full consciousness in order to master the world of matter and space and time and reality and to take our rightful place within it, as argued in many hermetic books. We must become the caretakers of the cosmos. I know Kung Fu. Because if we can't protect the Earth, you can be damn well sure we'll avenge it. We're here to help take care of things. Similarly to the notion in Kabbalah of Tikkun. The whole idea that humanity's job is to repair the mistakes in creation. Hermeticists seem to be able to not only house a lot of information, but somehow to create this inner space, this inner architecture, that knowledge somehow existed in this form of encompassing the whole universe. And this goes back to the hermetic notion of, as above, so below. The idea that we are all microcosms of the macrocosm. Within us, the entire universe exists. In the sense that it exists outside of us. This is part of this fantastic notion of what being human is. But enough of my drivel. Let us do the interview with Sarah Dern. And as a bonus for AB Prime members and Patrons at Patreon... I'll provide a past interview with Tobias Churton, where he shares his own ideas on alchemy. A great compliment. Ah, heresy shouldn't be this much fun. But it just is. It just is.
1: What are you afraid of? I don't know. Shall I tell you what's out there? Yes, please. The dragon. A beast of such power that if you were to see it whole and all complete in a single glance, it would burn you to cinders. Where is it? It is everywhere. It is everything. Its scales glisten in the bark of trees. Its roar is heard in the wind. And its forked tongue strikes like... like. Whoa, like lightning! Yes, that's it. How can I? What? What should I? Must, must I? Do nothing. Be still. Sleep. Rest in the arms of the dragon. Dream.
3: This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by Sarah Dern to discuss her new book, The Beginner's Guide to Alchemy practical lessons and exercises to enhance your life. Sarah, welcome and how are you doing?
4: I'm well. Thank you so much for having me.
3: Pleasure is all ours. As I think we talked, I saw your article on the Ouroboros and I said, wow, this is what our audience will really like. This is what they need in these strange times. So then I got your book and your book was a great read. I really enjoyed it. Short, useful concise just uh, excellent work
4: thank you so much
3: and with us too we are joined by the moon dog how are you doing Vance
2: oh I'm okay I stopped work today to be with you and Sarah and I'm sure she won't Ouroboros
3: <laughs> the pun had to come I was like hmm, when? how long will it it's take a Vance tradition. To- <laughs> with a pun
4: I love it Yeah.
3: Uh, <laughs> if you have more, please let us uh, let us go because the 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 vocabulary and the words in alchemy are just so rich. So you can have oh, so much fun, yeah. Vance. All right. Well, Sarah, well, why don't we start with you? How did you become interested in these esoteric practices and how did it lead you to become really interested in alchemy?
4: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think like most of us who are interested in the strange and esoteric. I have kind of always been interested in it ever since I was a kid It probably started from like a love of fantasy novels. And when I was in college, I went to NYU and I, I enrolled into a, a romance class, which I thought would be like about romance and literature and the history of romance and love. And it wasn't. It was about romances, which is our a whole form of literature in the Middle Ages. So I kind of got sucked into it unknowingly. Right. Um, but I had a great, great professor who really made me think about the Middle Ages in a way I was never, never had thought about it before. Looking at the literature and thinking about how we can think about these works like The King of Tars and um Chaucer's works as reflecting opinions and ideas of the time and sort of how things get coded in language. Um, so I kind of got hooked and I ended up studying it in college. It became part of my major. And when it comes to alchemy specifically, it was really kind of haphazardly, I guess. I sort of heard little snippets here and there about alchemy studying the Middle Ages. I was primarily looking at literature. Um, and then my friend, Mare, recommended this audiobook because I was doing a road trip to Maine, so I was in need of a very long audiobook. and she recommended this book called A Discovery of Witches, um, which I actually talk about in the book, and the writer, the author of the book, it's a fantasy novel, actually has its own TV show now, um, was written by an academic and a medievalist. Deborah Harkness, who imbues a lot of her research and stuff she's thinking about in an academic sense in her fantasy work. I mean, obviously, then there, there's like vampires and witches, so it's not quite real, but uh, there are little snippets of reality in it. And I'm a freelance writer, and so I pitched an article about a little more than a year ago to a site called Gizmodo and about kind of breaking down the true aspects of alchemy in those books and they picked it up and from there a publisher reached out to me so the book was actually solicited which I'm very thankful for my publisher Callisto. Cool. yeah it was really cool it was very strange because I got this email in my inbox being like we want you to write a book. And I was like, who are you? What yeah, is this? That never happens to anybody. <laughs> I know. That's Stephen I know. King or. <laughs> no, no. And so it was all just very like, and then the book actually, they had me on a really tight timeline when I was writing it. Um, I had like a month and a half to write the first draft of the manuscript. And then from there I had like the next two months or so to edit it. And this is all just this past fall. So it's been like, a, for books, a really quick process. Most yeah. books take years. Wow. So yeah.
3: That's awesome. Well, good deal. It looks like you are on your own destiny. And uh,
0: what I like <laughs> about your
3: book is we will unpack even more is that alchemy is everywhere with us. And of course, Vance and I, our work on this show is to show people that Gnosticism never went away and it's still with us and of course we all know here that really alchemy and Gnosticism kind of go hand in hand you can almost can't have one without the other and I liked in your book you uh, early on you basically say why you like alchemy you said it's because it's a balancing act between science and magic
4: yeah well that's kind of what drew me to it in the first place like I think what's really interesting about the Middle Ages and basically everything pre renaissance is that the lines that we put in place between different disciplines just didn't exist, so you have this flourishing of i mean there's a lot of art in alchemy too, and these illuminated manuscripts in the Middle Ages that come out of alchemy and artists themselves like there's evidence to suggest that Leonardo da Vinci was an alchemist and It all just like meshes together. So everyone was interacting with the same ideas and it was all part of the same, you know, capital T truth and kind of the pursuit of knowledge.
3: And you, of course, believe as we do that uh, science and magic don't have to be completely separate. Uh, They're they're very unified and uh, we can't live a magical life without losing our logic and reason.
4: Yeah, and I mean, I think when... Because I think it comes down to like, how do we define magic? And I think with like an alchemist would say that magic is just sort of the acknowledging the underlying energies and movements and currents um, in the world that propel us and propel scientists to discover, you know, like why does a scientist want to learn about the moon because they don't understand it. And kind of this pursuit of the unknown is really linked with, both magic and science
3: well said indeed and of course alchemy is as much finding out about ourselves who we are and you're talking about the middle ages i always like uh, sort of to quote the uh, what's it the coffee lady in saturday night live the dark ages were neither dark nor <laughs> nor, nor were there an age there was a lot going on with the Muslims, the remnant of the Persian empires, the monks, there was there was a lot of, uh, yeah, there was magic and there was science during those days and alchemy.
4: Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, it's a huge time and that the Middle Ages was just a conception really put on by Renaissance scholars. I mean, the Renaissance created the idea of this middle period between them and Rome. It kind of just were like we can ignore everything in the middle it's dark and it doesn't matter we'll just hop back to what the romans were doing which sort of negates everything that was happening in the middle ages as backwards or unnecessary when it was actually the bedrock of what allowed the renaissance to happen
3: that is very true i would agree and it's interesting i was uh I always like to say, because, of course, that's my shtick, that the, the hermetic texts that were brought from the Byzantine Empire really sparked the European awakening or renaissance. But uh, then, of course, some people are telling me, well, it was actually also the the tail end of the Black Plague that really sparked humanity. I'm like, well, maybe there's some hope for us today, isn't there, Sarah? <laughs> if we, we'll come out better at the God, end of yeah. this pandemic.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually writing an article right now about how um, there's these things called the dancing plagues. This is a bit of a tangent, but um, the dancing plagues happened right after and somewhat during the Black Death in the Middle Ages. And it was like these ecstatic mass dance parties. And it's considered one of the first examples of mass hysteria. Because people were so broken by the Black Death that they started dancing, and I think that's kind of a nice way to deal with trauma in some ways. <laughs>
3: wow! So they would just like leave their huts or whatever and just dance on the streets, like David Bowie and Mick Jagger, yeah. or something like that, or Glee. Yeah,
4: <laughs> David Bowie, Mick Jagger. It's like media- medieval David Bowie, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it was, and they'd last for weeks. These dance parties. There's actually there's a bit of debate but some people even think that some people died during them due to heat stroke or you know strokes or whatever wow (laughs) i guess if there's a way to go it would be dancing i'd take it
3: (laughs) i don't think we have to worry about vance going out of the streets and dancing at the end of the lockdown are you ready vance
2: yeah, I'm still uh, you know, doing that every day. <laughs>
3: no, not <really>. Inside your <laughs> house, yes, yeah, like Tom Cruise in uh in his movie. <laughs> well, we must
2: yeah, have been doing that I mean, in the eighties, you know. <laughs> Saturday Night Live.
3: Oh yeah, my God. Yeah, yeah. And Sarah, what would you say are some of your mystic influences or spiritual influences that's that have spoken to you and informed you?
4: Hmm. Well, I've always been a re- bit of a religious dabbler, just in who I am myself. Like I was raised sort of kind of Catholic um, and then was an atheist and then experimented. Basically, I like went to I went to school in New York City. So there's a ton of different religious institutions in New York City. So I went to Buddhist temples. I did a lot of yoga. I still do. and um i got really into the quaker religion i like you know quakers are so different than catholics and that catholics it's so much about like an old white guy typically telling you things and (laughs) quaker practice is silence and i was like i can get on board with this (laughs) um
3: you were quarantining yourself before it was cool just sitting there quietly and
4: oh yeah yeah I've been practicing for this moment for a long time. I'm excited (laughs) that it's here. Well, excited is a bad word, but yeah, I've been preparing. Um, Yeah. And then I kind of, I've always been really interested and now more recently gotten, I don't know. I'd still kind of consider myself a, a a witchy mystic or something. I, I, put a lot of stock just in my own life and kind of the changing of the seasons um and the different cycles that surround us when we live on the planet and i think there's a lot of really interesting people who speak to the cycles of nature and how that influences us as people living a human experience on this planet like francis of assisi and saint bridget in ireland um But kind of like the alchemist, I guess I see everything as one. I kind of feel like there's importance and meaning and something to be gleaned from every spiritual tradition. Um, And you can kind of just borrow and use what works for you. And so I guess my personal religious practice and kind of way I have come to understand the world is a combination of everything I've interacted with thus far and it probably will get more complicated and nuanced as I get older
3: and if you had to choose between the Lord of the Rings and the Harry Potter series, what would you choose <laughs> <laughs> just Ooh. came to me like yes. in
4: what sense like am I living in this world or I am say, I... yeah
3: living in either world and or being Ooh. in person in the series
4: I think I'd go Lord of the Rings just because right. I think Lord of the Rings is sort of it's a bit more like the Middle Ages
1: <laughs> yeah, <very laughs> than much. Harry Potter.
4: You know, Harry <laughs> Potter is still contemporary. Like, I don't want phones. I want phones to be gone. <laughs> do they have phones in Harry Potter? You never really see anyone with a phone. But I guess No,
3: that's a good, yeah, good I point. Know. I don't remember.
4: Yeah. Can you do phones no, I, very, I so. mean, I guess there's probably easier ways to communicate in the wizarding world. Very don't they cool. call people with their wands? I think that's a thing, maybe.
2: I had that Google Maps thing where you could see the footprints on the map. Remember that? Um, yeah. Yeah.
4: I mean, we're basically living it, you know? <laughs>
3: yeah. So I guess I go Except learn Except we're, we're it. all on the map.
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: Awesome. Well, good deal. Well, as I mentioned, when I first heard about you, it was your excellent article, The Ouroboros from Antiquity to ai and again like uh it was part of your your vibe of balancing act between science and magic and how both are relevant and can be unified throughout history i think as you said getting to know the unknown getting to know yourself and the article was just amazing so for the listener who might want to know tell us when did the symbol appear of the ouroboros Sarah
4: yeah the Ouroboros has been around for a really really long time um it comes from ancient Egypt is the first sort of inklings of it um and then it's solidified around maybe like 1000 BCE um but the Ouroboros comes about in ancient Egypt as I said and it's um very much involved in the story of the I'm not quite sure how you say it but Amduat which is this ancient Egyptian book of the dead there was like you probably have heard of the Egyptian book of the dead but there were plenty of them Mm -hmm. Um, in this specific text um, Amundat speaks to kind of this classic story of resurrection um, where Ra the sun god in ancient Egypt travels with the deceased pharaoh through the realm of the dead known as Duat, which is where the name of this book comes from, Amduat. Um and basically the idea was that they pass through these seven stages in the realm of the dead and through these seven stages the deceased pharaoh becomes one with the sun god Ra and basically becomes Ra. Um And in ancient Egypt, pharaohs were considered already gods in their own right. So this was just kind of a merging of different gods together in a way. Um, So they become one sun god and it's similar to the idea of Apollo and his chariot um, or Helios in the Greek tradition where every day they come up and go down with the sun. in the same way the Ra, the sun god, would come up in the east and set in the west, as is the typical story. But the Egyptians took it like one step farther and kind of said it also occurs in this realm of the dead. So like the circle continues in a way. We just only see the, the part of it during the day. Um and then how this relates to the Oresboros is that the this journey was accompanied by the serpent god Nihon and the serpent god was sort of the link between the physical and the metaphysical um in that it was the link between the sun so which what you could see and then the darkness and the night what you can't see and kind of the unknown um so then yeah kind of the Ouroboros and Nihon so if for those of you who don't know the Ouroboros is that You've probably seen it, maybe, but it's a symbol of the snake eating its own tail. So Mihan is like the snake. And then eventually, it's actually in King Tut's tomb, we see on the walls Meehan becoming a circle around King Tut's head, kind of symbolizing that King Tut, as the pharaoh, would go on this journey through the realm of the dead uh, to merge with the sun god Ra. So. That's kind of where its origins stem from in ancient Egypt.
3: And then what happened to the symbol once the Greeks came around? How did the symbol change to different meanings?
4: Yeah. So then the Greeks, I mean, I think one of the things that I, a lot of times we forget living in our modern world is that these different cultures didn't exist in a vacuum. The Greeks were always aware of the Egyptians and the Egyptians were always aware of the Greeks and, you know, Arab cultures, likewise, and European cultures, likewise. So there's already communication happening between the Egyptians and the Greeks, and the Greeks started adopting the Ouroboros. Um, And you really see it come to a head in Alexandria, kind of, so we're post kind of the height of Greek culture at this point. And Alexander the Greek, Alexander the Great, (laughs) Alexander the Greek, he's also Greek. Well, he's Macedonian. Yeah, but- <laughs> somebody, some
3: pedantic Twitter person. Yeah, is gonna be like some Karen yeah. is going to correct you for that.
4: Oh, but yeah. So Alexander the Great, um, he kind of comes into Egypt and founds Alexandria, this name, the city named after him. And it's there in Alexandria that Greek and Egyptian culture really merges. Um, and kind of fuses together. And it's there around like the second century, third century uh, CE, so the common era now, post-Jesus. We start to see the city become the center of academia. Scholars flocked there. um, And that's where this Ouroboros becomes both sort of adopted by Greeks, um, but also really the alchemists and the Gnostics and all the different groups that were in Alexandria at the time, Uh, different Arab groups were there and scholars kind of from all different traditions. And the Ouroboros at that point, so before alchemy kind of came onto the picture, the Ouroboros was all about this journey of the sun god Ra and it was sort of this cyclical journey and this becoming one with God. all of that kind of codified in the symbol. And then in alchemy, it became more, I guess, distilled in a way, which is kind of what alchemy is all about, really. Um, and so it just became the symbol of, like, the one mind in alchemy, which is just kind of this idea that all is one, the union of opposites. And in alchemy, in alchemy in general is all about sort of returning to the source, this like first material, uh, prima materia or first matter that we all come from and that we all return to. Um, So the Ouroboros kind of shifts in that way from this Egyptian idea of the merging of one into the god to the alchemical idea that everything is one and comes from the single source.
3: And it seems the Gnostics had a different view because always they had to be emos about the whole thing. So I think they <laughs> saw, didn't they see the Ouroboros as more like the, the Buddhist wheel of karma as they depicted in the Pisces Sophia and other texts? It's, it wasn't a good thing.
4: Yeah, you might actually know more about that than me. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely the Ouroboros takes on meanings, I know, in the Middle Ages, which could be related. You have the wheel of fortune, which in some ways the Ouroboros is echoes or is an echo of the Ouroboros in this kind of, yeah. And the wheel of fortune is like everything you have, you're going to lose at some point. And that this idea that, <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah.
4: you know, you better enjoy it now because
3: yeah.
4: it ain't going to last. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting how it's taken different meanings. I mean, um, I think for the audience, I always wondered and, I don't have any proof, but as some scholars have said, the Gnostics were really influenced by the the myth of Atum, the primordial god. There was this giant serpent who wants Mm. to create the other gods, and he puts his tail in his own mouth, and it basically comes in his own mouth, and that's how (laughs) he creates the god. Seriously, he inseminates his own mouth, but again, it's this, this giant serpent eating itself, so... But again, I'm sure, you know, myths have many streams. It's almost impossible to find a real source. The yeah. original writer said, I'm going to write about Prometheus and this is it, or Hercules. <laughs> you know.
4: Yeah, yeah, it just all never happens. <laughs> Which is a good like, lesson, I think, today that we're all just remixing the past, even when we think we have smart, creative, original ideas. It's like, hmm. Not so much. <laughs> Get yeah. off your high
3: horse. Well, it's like today when kinda... you see a meme, it's almost impossible to know if it's a great one, who started it. Once in a while you oh, can yeah. find the original mind, but it just kind of seems to pop up out of the imagination. Nobody knows where they come from.
4: Yeah, it's like the, our collective consciousness is, <laughs> is <laughs> via memes these days.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Pretty. That's not a good sign about our collective sanity, though. So No,
4: it's not, <laughs> is it? yikes <laughs>
3: yeah yikes that's why well that's why you're putting out books like that and and back to your article uh you talk about how the Ouroboros with alchemy got forgotten but we'll talk about how alchemy sort of made a comeback too but the Ouroboros according to your article has made a big comeback hasn't it
4: it has in a really interesting way um through artificial intelligence research um yeah so- a lot of like AI and tech lingo is as you might imagine the people in that world are somewhat nerdy like ourselves and a lot of <laughs>
1: yeah.
4: things end up getting names from medieval sources or even science fiction and sci-fi world um, and so the Ouroboros program is a term used for this kind of computer program that basically has no beginning and no end. So it's self-propagating in that it replicates itself and creates its own sort of world. I'm not, as you can see, very techy, but for this article I did a lot of research into it. So I can speak with a little bit of authority. But yeah, it's basically this program that it's sort of like computers thinking on their own that they can have a thought that isn't put there by a coder. Um, And so some researchers in AI are looking into how the Ouroboros program and the fact that these programs can basically think in a way, in a computer sense, um, on their own can be a way of creating the first artificial consciousness is really what I should say. Because in a way, there's... Arguments to say that we've already created AI, artificial intelligence, that we've created computers that, you know, can beat people at Jeopardy or um, beat people at this game called Go in Asia. Um, but we haven't created consciousness in the same way we have it as humans. So it's this weird sort of crazy circle in that the Ouroboros started as the symbol of You know, kind of everything coming becoming one, and this idea of life into death, and sort of the cycle of that being connected. And then in alchemy, this idea that everything is connected to one source. To today, where we have the Ouroboros program, where it's this computer that has maybe will have the ability to become its own thinking conscious think so it's all kind of I don't know it's cool to for me I get really nerdy about thinking about the layers of how these different symbols get remixed and kind of how this the meaning of the symbol in the past influences the meaning of the symbol today and I think you can see that with the Boris Oris program and artificial intelligence and all that
2: you know, Sarah, there's so much truth to that. Uh, I'm a programmer. I've actually been doing it 50 years now.
0: <laughs> shouldn't wow. date
2: myself by saying that. But um, almost every program that you interact with has is, is got loops in it, main loops. And it basically goes around, jumps back to the beginning, takes all the input, the new inputs, compares them to the old inputs, and so forth. A long time ago, I was playing with a video camera. And I don't know if you've ever taken a camera and a monitor and pointed the camera at the monitor. It creates a visual feedback, a video feedback and uh, you know, kind of like with a microphone where you put the mic too close to the speaker, it makes a tone. Yeah. Well, well what tone it makes depends on the system, but with a video camera, you can take the camera and twist it and you'll see all sorts of interesting patterns come out of the random fluctuations of light. So, you know, you know, And I thought, wow, you know, that's probably a lot the way, you know, conscious life forms work or, you know, part of the essential thing is feedback. And the essence of any intelligent process is feedback because, you know, you do something and you see what happens and you feed it back and you do something else. So that's uh, totally in line with the Ouroboros concept.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And there's researchers that have sort of contemplated the fact that, human well not even human life but just life on this planet had to be created through the first self-replicating cell and that we have the Ouroboros program which could be with a little more research into it the first self-replicating code and that could become its own kind of origin of this artificial life
2: that's funny um early in my career I had a project where I had to create a new facility in the operating system where you'd have a process and you'd spawn other processes. I mean, that's commonplace today, as many computer savvy listeners will recognize. But this is kind of new back in the 70s. And I had a young man that I had hired and he had taken it upon himself once I you know, had a test version of this up to write a program that would launch copies of itself <laughs> <laughs> filled up the system.
1: <laughs> wow. So,
2: yeah, good old Ouroboros. and that's what uh, what they call a, a tapeworm or computer worms are. You know, they they uh, they replicate themselves. You know, they uh, viruses do that too, computer viruses. So uh, much like um, a real virus. So who knows? Maybe the oh gosh, I'm going to say it. The coronavirus uh, might be an example. Codwins
3: <laughs> law, what do you call it? Codwins <laughs> yes. law. How long? Codwins
2: look- law. Yeah,
3: we created, Sarah, a conversation instead of, you know, Godwin's Law where somebody, when you get into an argument, somebody's going to bring up Hitler sooner or later. So now it's Godwin's Law where somebody's going to bring up the coronavirus
4: (laughs) and get away (laughs) from it, you know? (laughs) I know. I know. As a freelance writer, it's interesting right now because it's like a lot of publications are looking for articles not related to corona but are also sort of secretly related to it. Like I'm writing an article right now about the black death not on accident, but my editor doesn't want me to mention uh you know our current virus in any way. A virus <laughs>
3: that shall not be named.
4: I know. The Voldemort virus. <laughs> Yikes.
3: Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, what, uh, where does, uh, I'm trying to think when the Ouroboros might appear in today's culture. Obviously, you see it in music. Uh, people love it on their internet profiles. I know I watched the show um, Altered Carbon, which the Ouroboros is very prevalent. On your end, where do you see it appearing in popular culture?
4: Oh, gosh. I mean, I think it's always sort of there's all these different ways in which these symbols of the past sort of pop up. Um, I just went, I mean, it's not a modern example, but I was traveling in Mexico and they have their own sort of version of the Ouroboros on some of the temples there, these snakes eating their own tails. And of course they were selling like snakes eating their tails in the gift shop and stuff. So (laughs) I think there's sort of, I mean, we'll probably talk on Carl Jung, but this idea of the, I think symbols that had meaning in the past, even if we don't fully understand them today, still sort of have echoes of that meaning. And you see them pop up in ways that make you think they're meaningful because they are, but we've maybe lost the reason why we do it or what it means. And I think that's what a lot of what I'm interested in is kind of thinking about well, why do we do that and why? And how does the Middle Ages influence us today and sort of different pop culture references like Game of Thrones? And that isn't really the Middle Ages and yet sort of is in this sort of like Black Mirror version. Um, yeah. But in terms of specific examples, I guess the gift shop.
3: <laughs> There's so much out there.
2: I'm yeah. Here. The recycling symbol oh, is the Yeah. Bars.
4: Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. It's parallel too, a parallel, too, because, one.
2: you know you know, the sustainability, you know,
4: for sure, for sure. Yeah.
2: Good.
3: Eye, yeah, good sort eye. Of
4: recycling. Is-
3: awesome. And, um, well, why don't uh, we get to, alchemy and of course we will get into Jung you can't have alchemy without Jung just like you can't have (laughs) Gnosticism without Jung so but uh first we all uh, love Jung yes yes he's (laughs) a man these days especially as we go completely crazy and project our shadows on everybody on Twitter and social media and we're just uh anyway I won't go on a rant but um Your book, uh, one of the many great things about it, beyond being a a great summary and journey through history about alchemy, is that you also provide some very cool exercises, mental, spiritual, and physical ones. And these are the kind of exercises that you could do it in the comfort of your own home while you're under house arrest with very few materials. And you can just do these alchemical exercises. How did you come up with these? I tried the shadow one, and I had some good results.
4: Oh, wow. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> that
3: might be your first test, your first yeah. chemical experiment, Sarah.
4: Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm I'm putting my fingers together in that sort of evil way. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the exercises was an idea from my editor initially, and then I sort of ran with it. Um, he, my editor, he was amazing, Jesse Allen. Thank you very much, Jesse he had the idea to kind of do these exercises and sort of be a way for people to dip their toes into a version of alchemy without, you know, poisoning themselves with mercury, which we're yeah. gonna hopefully try <laughs> to avoid today, seeing how we know that Quicksilver isn't that great for us. Um, <laughs> so it was sort of a, an interesting process of, like there's one example in there of like making your own tincture, Um, And dangers are edible distillations of herbs and alcohol, essentially. And you can add them to your favorite cocktail or to help you sleep at night, you know, whatever it may be. And they've been around for a really long time. And there's something that do have a kind of useful, I mean, it's always useful to, like the one in the book is lavender. so. If you ever have a trouble getting to sleep, you can always make your own homemade tincture. Um, but in the same breath, even though it's just sort of a fun exercise, you are breaking down lavender into its parts, which is kind of what all alchemy is all about, is sort of taking what a thing is and then breaking it down to its essence. Um, and then also in the book, I think that's the only one that's sort of physical alchemy um, or exoteric alchemy the sort of alchemy of the laboratory of actually doing things that I think most people probably think of when they think of alchemy the sort of alchemists in their laboratories making all these potions and teachers and right. all sorts of stuff but uh, the other part of the exercises in the book is the spiritual and mental exercises of sort of meditations and journals and thinking about in the same way, like in physical alchemy, when you're breaking down lavender to its essence in a tincture, you can do the same with yourself and sort of like break down the thoughts and biases and stereotypes and all the stuff we get stuck in our brains, you know, from just living in this day and age and our culture with the movies that are out and the conversations happening and the state of the world as it is um i once had somebody explain like uh cultures like the rain you can't go outside and not get wet so you're all like there's no one who isn't influenced by the ideas of our culture um and sort of in alchemy and what i do in the exercises i hope is sort of provide ways to start interrogating ideas you've maybe gotten from society or culture and separating them from what your essence is and what who you really are um and sort of capital s self um which is what yeah alchemy is all about really
3: yeah i think you're right and you've already mentioned is that alchemy if you want a, a tagline is simply the art of transformation
4: yes yes i mean that's it That's really all it is. It's very quite simple, but then it's also the most this like heady, strange, mind-boggling thing. Like I, (laughs) when I was researching for the book, it was like I had ten different books open on either side. I mean, all of them open to various pages, and because it does get. I mean, if you try to read the primary sources from the Middle Ages, they're so they're basically written in code and that everything is an equivalent of something else. Like you talk about Jesus and the resurrection and the philosophical child as the, you know, son of God. And it, it gets really heady, really quick, but yeah, at its core, alchemy is the art of transformation.
3: And when did alchemy start? When can we say was it's Genesis?
4: Well, a lot of people put it to Egypt as sort of, again, one of the origin places for alchemy. But we also see alchemy and alchemical texts. I'm putting out chemical in air quotes, um, because alchemy as a discipline really does start in Egypt and Greece. Um, just the etymology of the word even has Egyptian and Greek roots. Um, but you see alchemical texts kind of pop up all over the globe around 2000 BCE. Um, and then much later, we kind of get, there's sort of hints of it that early. There isn't really, and we think for a long time, it was also, there was a big oral tradition to it. I mean, we know in places like India, um, just oral tradition was a lot stronger than the written tradition for a long time. It was likely a lot older Um, And in China as well, there's a lot of alchemists in China, but things kind of codified and kind of became a solid thing of alchemy around the second century CE, again in Alexandria. As I mentioned, Alexandria was kind of a hotbed for alchemy. I kind of imagine it like the ultra college town of the early (laughs) centuries. I like that. (laughs) It's like Cambridge and Oxford combined into some sort of Mediterranean hotspot of very smart people.
3: And I guess the question, this begs the question, in your book, you separate it into three types of alchemy. There's physical alchemy, emotional alchemy, and spiritual alchemy. And what was the reason the ancients, and maybe is it different than the people in the Middle Ages did alchemy? For example... I've had guests who say, "Who said, 'Oh my God, young'?" Just he was completely wrong. I mean, he thinks it was <laughs> all about spiritual, but that's not what the ancients were. He just put his own twist into things. I've had other guests saying, "Well, it's kind of a, a straw man because in ancient times, if you were going to plow the the field, you were praying to the gods, so whatever you did was spiritual. So it doesn't matter. What do you think? Why did they do alchemy? Was it for science physical or what was going on in the ancient times
4: yeah i i mean that's really an interesting question i think one i agree with both people have said kind of either thing i think we all as individuals as medievalists as people who study this put our are inevitably putting our own twist on things even if we try to you know research and do the do the work to not do that inevitably, we are again influenced by this moment in time, in our own heads um but also, in the past, like I kind of said earlier, I just there weren't, and I think I believe this is true i there weren't the clear breaking points or distinctions between the different disciplines, so inevitably, the sciences get imbued with a sort of spirituality um and kind of the three parts of alchemy I break down in the book, which um spiritual mental, which you said is emotional and then um which is true, and then physical and traditionally, scholars will break it down really into two categories of different kinds of alchemy, esoteric and exoteric, um, exoteric being the physical laboratory practice, esoteric being encompassing in my breaking down into three parts, both spiritual alchemy and mental alchemy. Um, And I think in terms of why the ancients did it and what drew people to alchemy, it was really a curiosity. I mean, it it was the science of the day. It was the way people were thinking about how can we... And I think it's just a... I mean, you could say, yes, there was alchemy in sort of every walk of life from the farmer to the scholar. But it was a scholarly pursuit, especially in Alexandria in the second century. Um, It was a thing academics really did and people who had money um, because it had a lot of equipment. And it was a lot about dissolving different liquids and stones and metals and seeing what happened. And then they sort of started thinking about, they observed what happened and started thinking of the different spiritual underpinnings of what was happening and why it was happening. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, even today there's quantum physics and the founder of quantum physics was really influenced by young as you know, (laughs) everyone seems to be. Um, but quantum physics in many ways kind of echoes a lot of what the alchemists were saying in the second century, that there was and is a connection between what we're doing with material and what is happening in sort of a spiritual or mental realm. Um, but yeah, so why were they doing it? Why do scientists do what they do today? I think it's just a human curiosity of what happens when we light things on fire and dissolve this and that. And I think what makes alchemy really interesting is the spiritual dimension of it. Um, and also just that it was, yeah, the pursuit of the unknown, which I think it's the human question of what is this thing we don't know?
3: That's really well said. It's like when they ask Mallory, why do you want to climb the Everest?" he said, "because it's there. That's what we yeah. do as humans. We're always we have to explore what we what we don't know where we haven't set our our feet on."
4: Yeah. Yeah, and it was kind of just their way of looking closer at the world around them. I mean, I think it's Paracelsus who he's a much later alchemist in the Middle Ages is thinking about how the world around him is a reflection of God and a reflection of the divine. Um, And they were, we were asking the same questions in the second century. I think people like to think that we are so different from, I mean, it's hard to think of like, like an ancient Egyptian, right? It seems so far removed, but there were people ultimately with the same sort of desires and love affairs and, Depression and anxieties, maybe not the same, but they had those feelings and they were still people. You know, we're not too different right. from them.
2: Yeah, ambitions, <laughs> which is well that was a big part of alchemy back in the Middle Ages, right? They wanted to turn uh, things into gold so they could fund the <laughs> alchemy.
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah, alchemy kind of got a bad rap in the Middle Ages, in the later Middle Ages, due to the puffers, which were these guys who were all about gold making a lot of uh empires and kingdoms coming out of the black death and coming out of the hundred years war kind of fell on hard times financially and they were like hey those alchemist guys don't they make (laughs) gold or something let's get them and so a lot of there was we know they hired court alchemists who kind of were considered a bit they were considered hacks really and they would like sometimes just like paint things gold and do all these sort of nefarious actions to try and make it seem like hey yeah i made gold that's gold pay me my gold <laughs> Well, uh,
3: elizabeth the first wanted john d to create lead to gold and she was involved in some experiments but it didn't work out for them they had to go conquer the new world and stuff Up on the Spanish, but yes, can you imagine if it
4: did and like this imperial England didn't exist? That'd be kind of fun, alternate history, (laughs) yeah.
3: Yeah, fun. (laughs) Well, I mean, look at our Fed today, they do alchemy, right? They just pump magic (laughs) money out
2: of nowhere. (laughs) That's right,
4: yeah. It's basically just the mints of yesteryear.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, one of our um, you might say patrons of this show, Sarah, is Hypatia of Alexandria she's I always mm. considered one of the great symbols of what was uh what was noble and good and and deep in the classic era. She was a neoplatonist obviously, but I still again she's a great symbol, but uh most people don't know she was also into alchemy right
4: yeah she was one of and is one of my favorite people I researched for the book Hypatia she was of this moment in Alexandria where alchemy was really popping <laughs> Um but she was I think the daughter of a mathematician and had to, like a really interesting story in her own right. Um and that's something that has drawn me to alchemy and I think there is a lot of issues in terms of how we frame the history of science today. Um specifically with the exclusion of female scientists and we know that was a thing but we also know like there were a lot of women who made many innovations in hypatia in the second century was one of those women um Indeed. she made a lot of alchemical advancements she started she made altercations to different alchemical equipment and even developed some of her own stuff she was really involved especially in exploring the elements i mean you mentioned she's a neoplatonist so um thinking about the elements that's really important for the neoplatonists and thinking about what are the basic building blocks of our world um you know which is still the question of today that scientists are continuing to answer in different ways i mean now it looks like the periodic table and it looks like atoms um but yeah so she she was very very cool she was born in Alexandria. To this mathematician father. We don't really know much about her mother. She traveled extensively across the ancient world, eventually making it back to Alexandria, where she got, worked at the university as a professor, essentially the equivalent of a professor. And she did her own research. And she was so revered in the community that government officials would come to her and ask her questions on the day-to-day matters of Alexandria, you know, in the same way we ask people who are scholars today to weigh in on different economic downturns or what have you in today's world. Um, but she came to a very grisly, grisly end. She was a pagan and this is right, you know, it's second century, so we're just starting to see the rise of Christianity and it kind of really becoming, waging war on the ways of the pagan past. And so she was leaving town when this mob of monks took her from her carriage and then flayed and quartered her and just awful way to die. Um,
3: Yeah. Agreed.
4: Yeah. But she's actually so much considered kind of, a pinnacle of alchemical research and insight that her death many scholars mark as the decline of alchemy in Alexandria and kind of was like this happened with her death in many ways because um, it's soon after that that we see sort of the Arab world take up the torch of alchemy in the West again it's going on in its own way in China and India and across the globe if you kind of just consider your alchemy this pursuit of sort of looks sort of like science um looks sort of like science and so yeah that's (laughs) hypasia
3: yes i mean yes so much change after death again it's very symbolical and uh she's definitely one of the smartest people in the history of mankind And so an amazing figure. And while we're speaking of women, your book also addresses many overlooked female alchemists. Obviously, in the Middle Ages, you hear about Flamel and Isaac Newton. I believe Albert Magnus, who was Aquinas' mentor, was a big alchemist. Aquinas probably did alchemy. But maybe, Sarah, you could share with the audience about some of the overlooked female alchemists in medieval times and so forth
4: yeah no i'd love to and i think it's important too when thinking about women in science is not to put them in a separate category i think sometimes we're like and here's the ladies that were also doing stuff but that they were an <laughs> integrated part of
1: yeah.
4: the history and it's not just like well you know there's science, and then this is what the ladies did no like especially in alchemy like you hear about nicholas flamel but you don't hear much about his wife, Franelle Flamel, who is also very integral in his discovery of the Philosopher's Stone. And obviously, it's Nicholas who we have most of the writings from. So it makes it seem, or scholars care to ignore. Certainly, I don't think scholars today do this, but scholars certainly of the 18 and 1900s were doing this, just kind of ignoring the fact that many alchemists alchemy is so much about the union of opposites that it was seen as in the laboratory to have both a man and a woman working in the laboratory was an important part to kind of make your experiments work um so a lot of these male alchemists had female counterparts that worked in the laboratory as partners and not as subordinate in any way and then you have female alchemists in their own right, like um, Cleopatra, who's a, not Cleopatra, like, you know, Mark Antony, Mark
3: Ant- e. yeah. Caesar, <laughs> not that it. Cleopatra.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, my name's Sarah, so there's a lot of Sarahs in the world. <laughs> a lot of Cleopatra's of the ancient world. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Cleopatra was an alchemist uh, who slightly before Hypatia and then, She develops different tools of alchemy, like the Alembic, which allowed heat to be distributed evenly to a substance. And then there's other alchemists that we see later on in the Middle Ages, female alchemists, um, since we're highlighting them right now. There's Marie Murdrak, um, who's a 17th century French alchemist. And she. there were a whole sort of plethora of these books Um, on alchemy in the 17th century and even a little bit in the 16th century where we see some women, um, obviously it's more difficult for a woman to get a book on alchemy published than a man, but we see female alchemists publishing these books. And a lot of times, unfortunately, that's all that we have of them is these books and attached to it is a female name. So we're like, yes, it's a woman. (laughs) But we also don't (laughs) know that much about who they really were besides their books. Um, but in the case of Marie Murdoch, this 17th century French alchemist, she wrote a book that was all these different recipes for different alchemical, um, you know, experiments that would, some of them were for women specifically, like cosmetics, um, others in the vast majority were not, um, they were just, you know, if you're feeling sick, maybe try this. And it was sort of like, uh a melding of different herbal practices and alchemical practices. And she actually has a really interesting intro that she writes for her book where she concludes, she kind of was saying how she was going back and forth about whether or not she should publish this book. But she ends up publishing it and in this introduction writes that her conclusion and why she allowed herself to publish, even though it was far more difficult for a woman to publish, was that the mind has no sex. Um, which is pretty amazing and then Mm. you have in Italy Isabella Cortese who wrote another book similar to Marie's these books were known as books of secrets and um, they were basically alchemy how-to guides Um, but a lot of her experiments Isabella's experiments were legit alchemical experiments similar to what male alchemists at the time were publishing in their own book of secrets, like how to pursue the great work and how to make the philosopher's stone. Um, and then also, you know, female only experiments like healing after childbirth. Um, and then you also have more well-known figures, uh, Christina, the queen of Sweden, who if you don't know about, like do yourself a favor and oh, wow. give her a Google. Bloody. Yeah, but she she was a fascinating figure, just in general, in sort of, they're all basically of the same 17th century, 16th century, but Christina, she did a lot of just craziness in her own right, and was very interested in learning as much about everything she could possibly get her hands onto. Um, And she conducted many alchemical experiments in her um, home in Sweden with the help of well-known alchemists, male alchemists, to try and create the Philosopher's Stone.
3: So, Sarah, as we get to the end of the interview, would you like to share the audience where they can find your book or find out more about you? We will have it in the show notes as always. But for the audio version, those listening to the podcast, where can they find out more about Sarah Dern and her work?
4: Yeah, thank you. Um, a great place to start is I have a website. It's SarahDern.ninja. Um, <laughs> <laughs> com was also available, but Ninja seemed like a lot more fun at the time when I made the website. <laughs> um, and I'm also on Twitter at Dern Sarah um, and on Instagram at Sarah Dern. Three and Sarah with an H for anyone listening and then Durn is spelled D-U-R-N um, and the book is available anywhere you buy books uh, it's available on Amazon as of May 5th
3: awesome well I highly recommend the audience to learn it to buy it and then read it it's, uh, it took me maybe an evening to read it, and uh, I can't wait to read it again. And I tried one of the exercises and look forward to maybe tackling the dream one, because, again, uh, you get Jungian on your ass, barring from, uh, <laughs> barring from Pulp Fiction a little bit. Like but uh, We're at the end here. First, I'd like to say, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company on this alchemical journey. And I don't know if you have a third pun. I'll just wait to see, because I don't have it. I'm terrible <laughs> at puns.
2: No, nah, uh, unfortunately, my mind is preoccupied with all the experiments that I have to do when I go back to work today. So.
3: Your own alchemy up in the stars. Yes. At the, at the yes, and for the audience, she does deal with astrology and alchemy in her book, so a lot to get there. So, uh, yeah, get the book. But uh, I'd like to say thank you very much, Sarah, for coming on Aeon Byte and discussing your excellent book, The Beginner's guide to alchemy
4: great thank you so much to you both this has been so much fun
3: and there you have it my beloved true seekers the first part of our interview with sarah dern and yes her book indeed provides a lot of practical exercises you can leverage during or beyond your house arrest In our second part, Sarah discusses alchemy in the Middle Ages, including several experiments and how the church regarded the practice of alchemy. She grants us her views on what exactly is the Philosopher's Stone. We certainly address Jung and his ideas on alchemy. And how William Blake providing amazing spiritual alchemical content. We travel to modern times and discuss the connection of alchemy and quantum physics, and much, much more. As mentioned in the intro, for AB Prime members and patrons at Patreon, I'll provide a past interview with Tobias Churton, where he shares his own ideas on alchemy. A great compliment. So please become an AB Prime member or Patron at Patreon for the full Philosopher's Stone. It really helps grow this Redbill cafeteria. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle. You won't find this Gnostic content or many of our guests anywhere else in cyberspace or Meat Space. Damning your soul has never been this cheap, but you'll get your spirit back. And for Patreon, you can pledge whatever you want. Membership includes full access to the Archive with more than 13 years of high-quality interviews. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Noose's Facebook group and the Discord channel, as well as other bonuses. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the US Mail really, really helps. I also have an Amazon wish list. Don't forget me books, like Voices of Gnosticism, or other Voices of Gnosticism. I can't do it without you, and the show has grown to the point advertisers want to appear, but they're rejected as I only work for you and only you. You can do so many wonders, I just know it, I just know it. You're so full of potential and the ability to navigate this age of Hermes. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye as always.